morning. Our text will be in John chapter 3 again this week, so if you'll turn there. We're going to be looking at the last portion of that chapter, verses 22 through 36. And this is, um, again, a section where John the Baptist is the main character. And so we'll get to look at John's role again and specifically how he sees his role when it comes to Jesus and how he sees his role changing now that Jesus is on the field doing ministry personally and and the ministry of his disciples. So uh, before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help this morning with the word. Lord, as we come to your word and we come to uh, these stories about you as you walked on this earth, we pray that you would help us to see them anew, to see them fresh. Um, thank you for the blessings of the you know, preparation this week. It has been very fruitful for me personally, and I just pray that um, we all in turn would receive the blessings of your word. It's true, it's right, it's good. And there are so few things that match that. And so open our hearts, open our minds that we might see. Convict us of our sin, Lord, because we have it. And it impedes our way in our worship of you and our understanding of your word. So convict us where we have it that we might repent and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to pick on my youngins a little bit today. They have birthdays, of course, like we all do, and my kids are more excited about birthdays than probably anyone I've ever met. They just love birthdays, and it's not just their own birthday parties. They love everybody's birthday party, especially each other's birthday parties, and it's like a plan all year long. We've, I think some of my kids even have them like planned out for years in advance, the type of party they're going to have. They're just really excited. And they get excited about each other's parties, and they've always wanted to help plan and decorate and, and be right in the middle of the planning, and then right in the middle of the party. And especially as they were younger, when it came time to, uh, to eat the cake and open the presents, it was always difficult for them to understand that this party's not actually about me. I've done all this planning, I've done all this thinking and caring, and, and, but it's actually not about me, it's about my sister. And that was a difficult thing. Usually there was weeping and gnashing of teeth to follow. And, but, and again, it's gotten better as they've gotten older. But we all understand that mentality. You know, we, we like things to be about us. Even shy folks like myself. We want people to recognize us. We want to think for them to think that we're special. We like to be fussed over to some degree, varying degrees for each of us. Because... When we are, we definitely feel good about it. It's a good, it's an actual physical response that we feel good about people being pleased by us. It's a good thing. And here in this text, John's disciples forgot that the party wasn't about them. We're going to read about John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, his disciples were struggling with this idea. Jesus was there. Their job was done. And there was no longer a real need for prepare the way of the Lord because the Lord had arrived and he had begun his personal ministry on earth. And so it was difficult for them 
And we see that demonstrated here in this text. And I think for us, we, we have the same difficulty. We forget that it's not about us. And I think that more times than others, sometimes we're guilty of this, sometimes we're not. But we even, uh, I think that even when it comes to our faith and our practice as Christians, we oftentimes forget to show that it isn't about us. And the Christian life and experience is ultimately about Jesus Christ, his glory, which we get to participate in, which we get to rejoice over. But we aren't the center of attention. Jesus is. And Jesus and John the Baptist reminds us of this in this text, just like he did for his disciples who were there with him at the time. And so we're going to consider two points here as we study this passage. That Jesus is the bridegroom. And so then we must decrease. And Jesus is the Son of God, therefore we must believe. So with that, let's look together at the text, John three twenty-two through 36. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 22, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Amon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said, to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So here we have a picture. The, the first couple verses kind of give us the setting where John is baptizing, but also it says that uh, Jesus was in the Judean countryside, and he remained there and with them and was baptizing. Again, John is baptizing, and what is this baptism? We've talked about this several times, but it signifies the purification. 
that can ultimately only happen through Jesus Christ, and this is the one that he is heralding. He's heralding Jesus Christ coming, and this, much like his own ministry, which prepared the way, this baptism was a preparation for the coming of Christ and for the redemptive acts of Christ. And he's still doing this even after Jesus begins his ministry. He still has disciples, as we read here. He's, he's still a man of God, and he wants to teach others the ways of God. This is exactly what we'd expect from him, that he's doing this very thing. But we also read that Jesus is baptizing. And in all likelihood, what this means is that Jesus was there overseeing the baptisms, that his disciples were probably doing the baptisms. If you'll just look across the page at chapter 4, verse 2, it says that, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, we don't know for sure if that's what the case is, but he may have been baptizing, he may not have been. But this is probably a very similar baptism to John, symbolizing this purification that Jesus alone can do this, ushering in the the ministry of Jesus and what he's doing. The baptism, as we know it today, is a sign of the new covenant, and the new covenant had not yet been instituted. So again, this is just a shadow of things to come. And uh, just just to quickly mention this section here about the waters being plentiful and they were baptizing. Um, just because the waters are plentiful doesn't mean that there was like people being dunked. Uh, but they could have been being dunked. And so uh, this is just one of those places in the New Testament where we, you know, we could maybe take a little bit too much from the text. And, you know, because we, uh, in, in a Presbyterian church, we sprinkle when we baptize. And, in, you know, in other churches, they dunk or pour. And so I think this is just to under, underline this. The mode is not as important as what it's actually being symbolized. And so we don't need to take take too much into this. And so I thought I would just mention it because it is a heavily debated debated topic. You know, baptism was washing with waters, and whether or not it was complete immersion or not, baptism is still important to the pages of Scripture. So we have to be careful that this doesn't become a proof text for some little little matter for us because it's not really supposed to be. Um, and I think we've had we have a lot of those as we go through this text that people have decided this is going to be a proof text for something that's altogether not that important, and so we have to be careful with that and see the see the main crux of the text, which we'll get into here. And so the first point is that Jesus is the bridegroom; therefore, we must decrease. And so you see this you get we get into this discussion between John's disciples and a Jew, some some just Jewish man or woman was there, and, and they were discussing with him about purification. And it was an important topic, if you think about it. Um, John's baptism pointed towards and forward towards purification, and this is what the entire Jewish life was about. If you read through the Old Testament, particularly through the first five books where all these purification laws are, a Jewish individual would have to be on their toes constantly about remaining pure and able to go to the temple and remaining clean. And so what John's baptism is saying, basically, Jesus is the one that does that. We're going to baptize Jews and Gentiles because purification has to do with Jesus, not about all these purification rites. 
And so here they are in a discussion about purification, and it could be a heated one. We don't know, you know, because the Jewish person says, well, I'm clean because of the works of the priest. And John the Baptist is saying, no, Jesus is the priest, and he ultimately cleans all. And so here's his disciples, and they have a problem with Jesus baptizing. Because Jesus is baptizing now more than he was. He was bad, they, they were baptizing for a time, but now Jesus and his disciples are out baptizing them. And the disciples are bothered by this. And so John is going to interject into this discussion. And he responds. What does he say? Everything that we have. Everything that we have has been given to us. We have drummed up nothing on our own. And this is nothing new. John has been telling them this from the beginning. What has he been telling them this? I'm not the Christ. I am not the reason that the people are coming out here. They've come to see me, but I'm telling them about someone else. I'm pointing forward to him. Remember, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we talked about in chapter 1. John is heralding Jesus Christ. His purpose is not his own. His purpose is the purpose of the one who sent him. And he uses, he's continued, he uses one of the major pictures in Scripture to remind them of this fact. And I love this from John the Baptist. He says this, look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. This is the first place in the gospel that we have this imagery of the bride and the bridegroom. Other than that, the actual wedding at Cana where we had a real wedding which I think really does point towards that picture as well. But you have this picture where John is talking symbolically about Jesus. He is the bride. He has the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, there are, there are tons of references about God being the bridegroom, his people Israel being the bride. God, you know, they had this marriage ceremony, as it were, in the in the wilderness of Sinai. The entire book, there's an entire book dedicated to this kind of imagery, where Israel is even painted as the unfaithful wife because of their continued turning to idols. That's the book of Hosea. Song of Solomon is a love story between a real husband and a real wife that is supposed to point forward to the relationship that Christ has with his people. So the Old Testament is full of these references. Jeremiah is another passage or another chapter or book that is full of these references, particularly when we see the new covenant is promised. So keep your finger here in John 3, turn with me to Jeremiah 31, and we'll look at a familiar passage. But I think it's key with Jesus coming and instituting this new covenant that this imagery would be used in talking about the New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God's ultimate plan is to bring his bride to salvation through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And we get that image. I took you by the hand in Egypt, and you left me, even though I was your husband. And all throughout the Old Testament, we get this back and forth between God, the bridegroom, and Israel, the unfaithful bride. And so here's John the Baptist speaking of this imagery with with uh, Jesus' work. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. This is Jesus Christ coming to rescue his people. He's finally coming to rescue his bride and have eternal relationship with him. He's the one that has the bride. John is the one who stands and hears him, the friend of the bridegroom comes and, and hears him, and what does he do upon hearing him? He rejoices. You get the picture of the disciples of John almost being the one who stands by at the wedding as the jealous onlooker, wishing that it was him, them, who got to be the bridegroom instead of Jesus, wanting to take his place. John is showing them that his rejoicing is that the bridegroom is finally here to take his bride. The wait is over. All of the tension that had been building in Scripture is now coming to fulfillment. And since he is just the friend of the bridegroom, since he is just there to herald the bridegroom and rejoice upon his coming, now that he's there, what must he do? He must take a step back. He must slink to the back because the party is no longer about him. It's about the one who has come. In this passage, he must increase and I must decrease is often quoted, but is rarely considered in its context. Now that Jesus is here, I must be less visible so that he can be more and more visible. John's disciples had it backwards. They saw themselves in competition with Jesus rather than his heralds. And they had a difficulty rejoicing with John. So let's look at this together. What is the root of this problem? And isn't this the same root that began with, she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, and she ate it? I mean, we love to see ourselves as the bell of the ball. Because that's when everybody does what? worships us. If the attention is any place else, we can't stand it. We want to be the center. I have students, and I see this in my classroom a lot. I see this in my classroom a lot. A student, they can't stand if they're not the spotlight, if they're not the center of attention. And this happens for better or worse. 
if I'm not paying attention to them or someone's not paying attention to them, they will act out sometimes very seriously in order to get everyone's attention because getting in trouble is some sort of attention, whether even if it's not really good attention. I think new big brothers and big sisters struggle here too. I've seen my kids go through this. I'm sure that Jane is having to adjust going through this with the new baby sister because the new baby is getting all the attention. What they used to have all to themselves now is being shifted to someone else. However, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, what does this look like? I think it can take several forms, but I think most clearly it's anything that we do where we would divert attention away from Jesus and towards ourselves. And I think this happens in churches as much as it happens anyplace else. And I think it happens particularly in worship services as much as it happens anywhere else. These can be good things, prayer and reading the Bible and worship singing in front of people. And I could use many examples where people struggle and we struggle here, but I'll just use myself as an example, and that is in preaching. Because when I began preaching in my early 20s, I would begin... I would I would often like plant comments out there so that I could get a compliment on my sermon or that people would say something about it or I would act like um kind of like a wounded bird or something that was going to the pulpit oh I'm not going to be very good at this so just bear with me all in order to garner the attention and the praise of people oh that was great don't worry about it and I would love that cuz we love being praised I would make sure to say something funny, tell stories so that would perk people's ears up so that they would praise me. And that's not a bad thing, telling a good story or saying something funny. But if you're doing it for the praise of men, obviously it's not good. I did this because I wanted the glory. And so consequently, what happened if I didn't hear something or I received one bad criticism on a sermon? I took it as an insult like the kid who realized finally that the party wasn't about them. That was me. And so as I've aged, I've become more and more aware of this, and I've worked to stop this in searching for my own glory and preaching. But this could be any kind of Christian pursuit or non-Christian pursuit, because everything is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Yet we want everything to be about us, because we want to be God. That's it. Remember, this is always the way that our sin goes. We want to be the bride, or we are the bride of Christ, that we would go, but we want to go after another because we don't want to wait for the bridegroom. We want to choose our own. And so the challenge for us today, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to join with John here, rejoicing in the coming of the bridegroom, standing and hearing him, listening to him, praising him as he goes, because he is the star of the show. And in that way, we must, too, decrease. He must increase. The show is not about us. It's about him. And everything we do should be to propel him above ourselves so that we aren't part of the picture, but he is. What is it in our worship that doesn't magnify him? 
but would seek to magnify ourselves. Let us remove those things. What is it in our personal devotion that doesn't magnify him, but seeks to magnify ourselves? Let's cast those things down. Think about our families, our professions, whatever it is that we do, anything that we're putting ourselves above Christ in order to receive the glory, let's get rid of them because he doesn't share the pedestal. He alone is the star. And so we have to decrease as he increases. And secondly, Jesus is the Son of God, therefore we must believe. This next section, verses 31 through 36, uh, you'll notice that the quotes kind of close there at the end of 30. And a lot of commentators are wondering if these are words of John the Baptist or if this is John the Apostle interjecting and teaching his own separate thing here. Um, I don't think it matters too much. Uh, it seems to me that this is just a continuous thought, and this is John the Baptist teaching here, but I don't think it really matters. These are the words of the Lord, and these are words that demand our obedience and study, regardless of who said them. But that is a debate about this passage. But I think they really sum up nicely what has been this continued refrain in John chapter 3 in particular, that those who believe, the ones who believe inherit eternal life. The ones who don't will not. Jesus is different from any earthly teacher because he comes from heaven. He utters the words of God, as it says here. He has the words of God because he is God. This is another continued theme. Here we see in, in, in the book of John. There are those that would hear this testimony and yet refuse to believe it. Why? We talked about it last week. You see it in this passage again today. They live in the darkness. They run from the light. No one receives this testimony. It's Jesus Christ alone who gives the Spirit without measure. And that ties us again back to the New Covenant. A promise from the Old Testament. A promise that the Father made to his beloved bride. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And notice what belief in Jesus Christ does. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And again, this is an idea that we've seen before. The one whom the Father has given Everything to, he gives eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let that never grow old to us, brothers and sisters, as we see this. It should knock us out of our seat every time, because we are so undeserving of that eternal life. Because if you look at what unbelief, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. This should strike fear into the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike. The believers are probably the only ones that have are capable of feeling this tension because the unbeliever still considers themselves as God. But I mean just consider that. The wrath of God remains on the unbeliever. Read through the Old Testament. You get a taste of what this looks like. 
there's just countless examples. He just has wrath and lots of it. And where where he goes and decides to, to demonstrate that, it's rough on everybody. And yet, God offers us his grace and his mercy in full through belief in his Son. And this is freely offered to all. The one who believes will receive eternal life. There is no catch. There's no like, and then this, or anything else. The one who believes will receive eternal life. But a lack of the belief, a lack of belief is the worst possible sin that one can commit because unbelief is saying again, I'm God, you're not, you're powerless to stop me, God of all creation. And I kind of get this picture with this, the wrath of God remains on him. And you, you've all read John Edwards' sermon, The Sinners, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and he talks about the spider dangling over the fire. And you, you kind of get this, this image of this tiny little figurine shouting up at its creator. I'm God, you're not, you're powerless to stop me. And the wrath of God remains on them. The, the toy maker holds this little figurine and that's holding it above a fire. Its, it's doom is impending. It needs only believe in the one that's holding it up, but yet it refuses to and it throws rocks at its creator. The wrath of God remains on the one that, that doesn't believe. The little toy thinks that the show's about him. But the show is not about the toy. It's about the Son, Jesus Christ. And the unbeliever need only repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He can save you if that's you. Call upon his name. So in conclusion, Christians, let us consider those things in our life that we would use to steal the glory away from God. What is it? We must decrease. This show is not about us. We must decrease. He must increase. We must, must make a lot less of ourselves and make more and more of him. John the Baptist was a great example for us here. And so let us endeavor to make much of Christ so that the world may know that he alone is the Son of God, the Savior of our souls. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come, that you, our bridegroom, has come, and you have come to take your people home. You've come to take your bride home. Lord, help us to stand and rejoice. Help us to rejoice in you and to make less of ourselves so that your glory might go forth, so that your kingdom might go forth. Help us, Lord, to work towards that end, not towards the end of our own glory, but be thrilled about what you're doing, whether it's here in Murray or no matter where it's happening. Let us not be the jealous onlooker, but let us be the one who rejoices at what you're doing. We pray that you would help us towards that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.